welcome to Because I Am the Teacher. My name is Jill Krug, and I am one of your hosts. I'm here with Patrick. Hi, I'm Patrick Bruce. So this podcast is going to cover some of the current issues in education, laws, policy, legislation, opinions, hopefully a little bit of everything, and hopefully a little bit of something that will educate you. So my background is in education. I've been working for seven years now in education. My undergraduate is in uh, math education, and my graduate is in business administration. And my background is also in education. This is my fourth year teaching. My undergrad is in math education, and my graduate degree is in cultural studies and education, so looking at uh, issues related to race, class, gender, etc. Patrick and I actually went to college together, so we go way back to our, our math studies. Let's get started with some of the current issues in the media and with maybe the Department of Education and some current legislation that's been repealed. So what do you want to start with? Uh, Do you want to start with the current Secretary of Education and some of the things that she's been saying publicly and some of the issues surrounding her confirmation, etc.? Yeah, absolutely. There's so many things to choose from. I, I don't know if you read, but on Wednesday, I believe the Trump administration, in collaboration with DeVos, had chosen to repeal the transgender bathroom usage policy that was put into place under Obama. So what right. are your thoughts on that? I actually heard that she was at least privately opposed to that, which actually surprised me. I did not hear that. Was there any background on that? I just heard that apparently she had said that she didn't really think that that was a good thing to do. I assume it was probably because of her business background, but I don't really know the details. I just know that she apparently behind the scenes was not exactly thrilled with that decision, but she was basically told, you know, this is what we're going to do, so get on board kind of thing which I thought was actually really interesting because I think that's probably the only thing I've heard from her so far that I wasn't, you know, completely mad about. I also am really surprised about that. I mean, on the one hand, good for her for being opposed to it, but on the other hand, if she was opposed to it as, you know, the Secretary of Education, you'd think maybe she'd get behind something that she believed in. I think that's really important in the realm of education because we all get behind things we believe in every day. Right. I think it's really disappointing to see that. I mean, it's so hard for kids to go to school and they face so many issues every single day. And for some of them, this is going to be you know, horrible, and it's going to make their school and home lives and personal lives and public lives just all around awful and and hard, and I think that's really unfair. School's hard enough. Well, and, you know, here in North Carolina and Charlotte specifically with the whole, I don't know if you're familiar with all the controversy with our bathroom bill here in North Carolina and all this other stuff, House Bill 2, you can tell that a lot of people just don't really understand the issues behind transgender individuals. People are characterizing transgender individuals as sexual predators and things like that instead of really getting down to the issues with bullying and um, all those other things. And it's just like, you know, people just want a place to pee, like, at the end of the day. No, I think you're right on. I think people misunderstand the issue or are not willing to see the issue for what it is for other people. They make judgments on like, you know, I would never want to have a sex change. Well, okay, then don't have one and then don't use the other sex's bathroom. Like that solves that problem. 
Right, and they don't. They may not know someone who's transgender, and they may not, you know, understand that the fact that they feel comfortable with their own gender and their sexual identity in and of itself is a privilege. They don't see it. I think a lot of it just has to do with lack of awareness more than anything. Absolutely. We'll see what happens to that. I read uh, an article that said that they were both DeVos and Trump were pushing it back to the state level to decide that they were encouraging states. So I will definitely be writing my representatives. Well, and I just think it's funny, like when it comes to issues involving discrimination, I just don't understand why that is left up to the states. So some states, okay, it's okay, but others it's not. I just, you know, and a few years ago when we had issues with gay marriage and things like that, it was the same kind of thing. It's like issues involving civil rights are not a, a state by state. You can discriminate, but you can't because just based on your zip code. Like that's not how those things work. Right. And I think that especially at the school level, I mean, if you think about moving and trying to transfer credits and individual state requirements, I mean, those kind of issues are are big. I know that when I went to high school, that was a huge issue because I moved in the middle of high school. And so then to include things like bathroom issues and civil rights on top of that as these kids move around, I think is really harmful. Yeah. It really, yeah, I think there's other things we could be focusing our time and energy on. Yeah, I was just, I was just double checking. Uh, it did say, according to CNN, who has now been banned from presidential press conferences. An news. article. Fake news, Patrick. That's right. Sorry, fake news. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was from Wednesday. It said that she uh, opposed Trump's uh, plan to withdraw guidance for transgender protections but she deferred to the president saying that it was his decision to make i see and i mean i'm I'm glad that she opposed it because she has come out several times and said that you know she's for equality and that she wants all students to get you know the same educational opportunities and that she wants they're not to be bullying and blah 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 which is i mean that's all good things to say but you know put your your money where your mouth is and then, right. of course, the only thing that she did come out and say, and, and I, I'd have to look it up, but I thought this was hilarious, was that it was something along the lines, and, and I'm not quoting, but something along the lines of, I want all of our students to get the same education regardless of their age. Because there's a lot of ageism that goes into schools. You probably know this, right? We discriminate against age, you know, because there's a requirement that you have to be educated until you're 18, so lots of ageism going in to schools, right. a huge, oh huge country sweeping problem. So I'm really glad she addressed that. None well, of the actual I mean, she issues. She also addressed the issue of grizzly bears in schools. And and you know what? I do have to say there has not been a grizzly bear in my school since she was approved. So <laughs> there hasn't been one at my school either. So I guess, it's, you know, held up to her word, right? Yeah. No grizzly bears. She's been outside. She's been, I think she's probably patrolling the perimeter of schools, you know, fighting off. Oh, my God, what a nightmare. (laughs) I mean, there was also no grizzly bears in my school before, so I'm not sure the correlation there. I'd have to do some statistical calculations. What was it, a week and a half ago now that Betsy DeVos was able to actually find her way to a public school? And, you know, we should really applaud her for that so I think maybe it was misunderstood the protest was really a celebration that she found a school I'm just kidding that was I mean a big step forward it's probably one of the first times she's seen a public school or talked to those disgusting public school teachers 
Yes. I understand why people were upset about her coming. I get it. But I think at the same time, like, we should be encouraging her to go and actually see what a public school looks like and, you know, what they're doing. She later said on a – I wanted to make sure – quoted her correctly, she later told a reporter in an interview that she thought the teachers at the school were in receive mode, and they were waiting to be empowered, and she thought that that was a problem. And so the the teachers at the school kind of fired back at her on Twitter, which I thought was kind of funny. Yeah, I, I think like you said, we should be encouraging her to get out and to get involved, because maybe we can help her see some of the issues, and maybe she will make some changes, and that would be great. But also... I don't think we should ever give her the argument that she can't do anything because we don't allow her into our schools. Right. So I don't think we should ever give her that, you know, weapon in her tool belt because that's definitely not going to be helpful for any of us. And I think that she, some of the decisions and some of her opinions are based on a warped understanding of what public schools are really like. Absolutely. I mean, going to a inner city D.C. public school also, I mean, that's not necessarily representative of all public schools either. I mean, she needs to go and visit other ones as well. I agree. I definitely understand the protester. I mean, I also was pretty upset when, when she became the Secretary of Education. I think it was an unfortunate choice. I think she's seriously underqualified. You know, I'm, I'm really hoping maybe she proves us wrong and maybe she is able to do some things for our education system. But... I I definitely am not going to hang my hat on that. But I do think that we do a disservice to our students when we don't allow her access and we don't allow her the opportunity and then we arm her with the ability to say that we won't let her into our schools. And I think that that's going to make things worse. Yeah, I agree. And I think there's a better outlet for the anger and for the disappointment. I think doing things like educating the population about some of the issues and running for office at your local level and attending protests that are doing something that is actually benefiting or making a difference, I I think are a better use of time. I definitely, obviously we have the right to to do these things and we're really lucky to have that freedom, but I, I just worry that that those kind of protests are going to be unhelpful. Yeah, yeah. I was just concerned that it that one in particular may have done more harm than good. I and I get where the people are coming from, I do. But the fact that she doesn't know and is so underqualified in my opinion, she has to educate herself and we have to let her do that. Absolutely. Which kind of moves us into San Diego School District uninvited her. Did they finally make that official? They did. So school board president Richard Barrera uh, made a statement to the press regarding disinviting Betsy DeVos to the district. They had initially wanted her to come out and see what their community was doing and how they were involved in providing a great education and involving their community in the education process. They had decided to vote against extending the invitation. They just felt like it wasn't the right time or place for that to be happening, and they felt like their resources were going to be better utilized in other ways. Um, Apparently, the 
concern came from parents and the teachers union and the community. So that was really interesting. Right. I definitely saw both sides of that one as well. I can understand not wanting her there and not wanting her. And especially in places like California where education is so valued, they may be better off without her and they may be able to kind of cut ties federally a little bit more than some poorer districts or some poorer states or some states like Arizona or South Dakota where we don't spend a lot. Right. Well, and you were telling me earlier about what she had talked about in her speech at CPAC. Did you want to? So she had made a joke. We'll use that term fairly loosely because I did not find it funny. And I have a pretty good sense of humor about being the first person to tell Bernie Sanders that there was no such thing as a free lunch. And I personally thought that was outrageous because so many of our students do receive a free lunch because... Our families are not making ends meet or are barely making ends meet. I know um, I worked several years overseas for the military processing free and reduced school lunches. So she's saying to all those military families serving overseas that their kids, that they should be paying for their kids lunch. I think that's pretty disrespectful and kind of ignorant too. I also spent a couple years, or just one year, I guess, on the reservation. And, you know, many of my kids, that was the only meal that they were getting every day. And that was, I mean, how how are you supposed to tell a kid that they, you know, aren't going to eat? So... I don't know. I I thought it was a fairly ignorant thing for her to say. I understand that she kind of meant it as a joke, but again, I I, I don't think it was funny. Yeah, no, I don't think it's funny either. And I think it shows her, it shows her lack of empathy and understanding, you know, coming from such a privileged background herself. It's, it's always about, oh, them, they're taking money from us, you know, the hardworking entrepreneurs, job creators, whatever, what have you, you know, she's a multimillionaire and just doesn't get it. Like she doesn't understand how most people live. I mean, she really doesn't. And our school is the same way. You know, it's, it's one of the better ones in our district and it it still has 45% free and reduced lunch. And every kid in the school gets a free breakfast and all the kids who qualify get free or reduced lunch. So they get two meals a day. And for some of them, they get the 10 meals during the week, and that's all they get, you know? And she just doesn't get it. And, yeah, we know there's no such thing as a free lunch. That's not the point. The point is it's free for those who can't afford it. Right, yeah. It's just just crazy to me. And we all know that the amount of money they spend – on our lunch program is appalling anyway. I mean, I don't know how you're able to provide a truly nutritious meal for $2. I mean, you're not. So, you know, there's issues with that as well. Yeah, I think I think you hit the nail on the head with, with saying that she just lacks empathy and understanding. I mean, she just has no clue about these kinds of schools because... She's never seen it. She's never participated in it. She's never had to send her kids there, and she's never been in that situation. And she's really, really fortunate for that. I mean, kudos for her, I suppose. But there's there's so many Americans that are attending really underfunded schools and uh, so many families that are struggling to make ends meet and so many families that are utilizing the free and reduced lunch program. Yeah. Well, it, it kind of reminds me of that article that you sent me from the Huffington Post where, you know, it talks about some of the issues with quote-unquote school choice and why it's really no choice. You know, and it brings up this argument, and I, I agree with it to 
in a lot of respects because I think it brings up a lot of issues and I agree with with some of the points in the in the opinion piece where you know it talks about this idea that you know vouchers it sounds great when you talk about it and it sounds great to say oh you know we're gonna give families the choice like they're stuck in a failing school and we're gonna give them the choice to go somewhere else well the problem is a lot of the places if you want to go to a, a private school or somewhere else that charges tuition the voucher usually doesn't cover the entire amount so unless you have the money, which a lot of these kids in poverty and their families in poverty don't have the money to even pay anything to go to another school. And so basically you're just you end up just subsidizing wealthy people who were already going to a, a private school anyway. And and I think the author is exactly right. There was a it was an article by Steven Singer and you know, I just think he's he hit the nail on the head. That's part of the problem. And I think DeVos is one of those who wants to eventually privatize the entire education system. And I just have a problem with that because education should not be a business. It doesn't operate like a business for a reason. Business interests and public interests aren't always the same. What's best for the public isn't always what's best for a business. And we already spend enough money. We don't need to be lining shareholders' pockets with money in a for-profit institution. I just, I'm completely opposed to that, 100%. No, and I think I, I think that's totally true. I think if you if you look at who is supporting, and this was talked about in the Huffington Post uh, article as well, is that who's supporting school choice? Well. You're not seeing a whole bunch of, it's not a grassroots movement. This is something that's being supported by billionaires. This is something that's being supported by wealthy people. We're not seeing a whole bunch of, you know, low-income families saying that, you know, we need to have this movement. And they're the ones that should want most change. They're the ones that are getting access to the least and to the worst education and to the most underfunded schools. And they're not the ones that are supporting this. And I think that that says a lot, that they're the ones that are most effective and they're not the ones that are coming out and saying these things. And I think part of that is is what you said, is that they're, they weren't going to go to the private schools anyways. And then if you look at the location of the majority of charter schools, they're not accessible to low-income yeah. families. It's not like we're opening charter schools in inner cities. We're not opening charter schools and private schools in you know, inner city DC or downtown Phoenix. That's not really where these yep. are. It's not happening in, in Charlotte either. We have them in the suburbs because we're a countywide school system and you're seeing them in the suburbs where parents have been disaffected or disillusioned with the public school system. They see it as, oh, well, I don't want my kid going to school with inner city kids. And so yeah. they send them to a charter school in a suburb. And... Yeah, I mean, because if you think about the families that are living in the lower-income areas, they don't have the means to transport their kids to an outside school. They don't have the means because most of the charter schools are not funded for transportation through the state. Yep. They don't get federal funding for school transportation, yeah. which is a big difference in this, the, the public schools is they are funded for that. So your kid is definitely going to get to and from school. Which is for those low-income families that are working and need, if they have one vehicle or they need to live downtown where the bus system is, 
so that they can utilize that or to use, you know, city transportation, those families don't have the means to transport it. So unless her plan is to force charter schools to open in these areas, what are all of these kids going to do? Right. Well, and then you bring up the issue of if a charter school opens, is that going to close down some of the public schools and further reduce access? Right. And the article also talked about this article was was one of my favorite. I thought it was really well articulated and I thought it really hit on a lot of the points that people may not think about. Because like you said earlier, we hear school choice and it's it sounds great. I mean, and if it worked in a perfect system, it would be, you know, I, I totally would say that you know, if we could figure out how to open enough schools to provide education that's appropriate for every student, absolutely. Because I think as teachers, we want our kids to get the best education for themselves. So if students could go to schools where the arts were a huge thing or where STEM schools or, you know, all of these magnet schools that already exist, if we could have just tons and tons of those that were available for all of our students in the whole country and were accessible to them and their families at no cost, Absolutely, but that's, I mean, at this point, that's a pipe dream. That's insane. It's never going to happen. Right. Well, and you can't have an entire public system and an entire charter system coexisting where they both have equal number of schools. It'd be too expensive, too many redundancies, et cetera, et cetera, and that's the problem. Like, I hate to say it because school choice sounds great because you want to provide choices for families. You don't want to say you're stuck here. But then on the flip side, every school that receives public money, like most charter schools do, then that money is taken from a public school. And so, you know, there's a, it's almost like a zero-sum game. I wouldn't say it's necessarily zero-sum, but it does create some issues in terms of funding and that sort of thing when money changes hands. It does cause problems, and you can't have a ton of both coexisting at the same time. And another thing that I was thinking of when you were talking about lack of access you know, I grew up in a rural area. There's, there aren't any charter schools around. If you went to a charter school or a private school, you'd have to be bused at least 50 miles. Are, are they going to pay for that? Is, you know, is the Department of Education going to provide funding for that? I mean, how are you going to provide rural schools access to choice, quote unquote, when there aren't any other options around other than a public school? I think that's a great point, too. And I worked on the res. I mean, some of my kids, we had all the farmers and the ranchers and the country kids were being bussed in, and some of them were bussing an hour and a half every morning and every right. afternoon. So how are you going to provide a, an alternative place for them to go? Because if they they are going to the closest school, and we're an hour and a half away. So what are you going to do? Are you going to require these kids to bus two or three hours? Or are you going to build one-room schoolhouses that are accessible because that seems to be moving backwards. Yes. I mean, what's what's the plan? Because we can't facilitate building three schools out in the middle of nowhere for 100 students to go. And right. I'm not saying those 100 students should not be receiving a phenomenal education. They should be. But we can't have three schools for 100 kids to pick from. That's expensive. That's a poor use of educational funds. Well, and I think, too, like, I just, I keep thinking back to my own experiences with working in a public school that is near a very well-respected charter school. And I keep thinking to myself, and you know, you know this, where we as a public school, we accept all students. 
and we get kids that get kicked out of the charter school. And we receive public money. They receive public money. We have to take exams. They take exams as well, state exams. But we are limited in when we can start the school year and when we can end the school year. They are not. They have flexibility. We're on a block schedule, 90 minutes, four periods a day. They do eight periods, 45 minutes a day. They're allowed to change their schedule. We're not. So we're not playing by the same rules, but then at the end of the day, we get an article in the Charlotte Observer that says, you know, oh, this charter school that's located in the suburbs that has a lottery enrollment to get into and a waiting list, they're fantastic. But this school, this public school down the road, you know, they're just mediocre. They got a C on their latest report card, uh, on their state report card, which, you know, we can have a whole other podcast on that. But, (laughs) you know, it just brings up issues of are we really making a fair comparison between the schools? No, I... I think that that's a really valid point that you bring up because, I mean, I do work for a charter school and I work for a a Title I charter school. So for anybody that's listening that doesn't know what that is, that's a a charter school that serves a minority and underprivileged socioeconomic population. So we have really diverse student base and we also serve families that are really low income. So we are unique in that we are in an area that is serving and providing school choice for students. But again, we aren't serving inner city Phoenix because we're too far away. So we are hitting some of the population, but we're not hitting all of it. But I think that there needs to be some changes in school autonomy because when you're spending so much time running your decisions up through the chain of command and back down, you lose the ability to do so many things. So one of the things I love about Working at a charter school is that at my school, we do have the ability to make changes without without it being a whole ordeal. So if I want to do something for my kids that I think is valuable, I write up a proposal and I take it to my principal and she either approves it or disapproves it and then I do it or I don't. And I think that that's a really valuable thing because you know, teachers have good ideas and we are trying to bring all of this outside information and outside experience to our students. And when we bring in all this red tape that has to get cut through, I think that the people that lose out the most are the students. Yeah, you're exactly right. You know, that's a whole different thing, but it does touch on on just the difference between charter schools and public schools. And, uh, you know, across state lines, of course, that also differs. But I think it's it's something worthwhile to understand. Yeah. Anything else you want to touch on? I worry and wonder what's still to come. <laughs> yeah, I also worry about that. However, I also don't know how much impact she's going to have because she says a lot of things, as does Trump, but there's not a lot of doing of things. You know, anybody can say things, but you have to follow that through with some action for it to have any sort of impact and I was I was listening to another podcast and they were talking about the issue with Trump and I I thought it was very relevant to DeVos as well is that and and more so Trump is that he's a showman and, and wants you know to come out to the crowds and say all the right things and generate you know enthusiasm but then when it's time to go back to the White House and do something you know, he's watching cable TV. So that, I think, translates to DeVos as well. She said 
a lot of things about what she believes and what she'd like for our schools to look like, but she hasn't really done anything to include supporting something that she was against, which is, you know, re- reversing the transgender issue with the right. bathrooms. So. And she keeps talking about this, you know, this idea of, and, you know, this is a very traditional, stereotypical conservative argument about decentralizing education and bringing it back to the states well what does that mean because i you know there is there's a lot of opposition to you know the common core standards and like north carolina played this game of where we did common core now we're calling it north carolina math but it's it's the same thing they just called it something different i mean they changed a couple things and so it's like how much is political theater and how much are we really going to see things change? And what exactly does that look like? Because, you know, you brought up the point, and you're exactly right. You move from Arizona to New York. Do we really want to have large-scale issues, if you're a high, especially at the high school level, transfer of credits from school to school? You know, we do want autonomy for our local school districts, but don't we also want some sort of standard across the board? I mean, I think that's something worth debating. I agree. And I think I'd be interested in doing some more research and doing a follow up on that. But I think that and especially I mean, I, I've been affiliated with the military community for most of my career. And, you know, those students are moving around from Department of Defense schools overseas, which are not under the Department of Education. So they're receiving their education there, which is it is a good education. However, it's just different. It's differently regulated. It's different standards and things like that. And then they're coming back to a variety of states and they're trying to transfer credits and they're trying to graduate. And, you know, we want our kids to be college and career ready, but we're not really providing them, you know, especially our very transient students, we're not providing them with the continuity of education. Yep. I mean, something maybe for a later podcast, but something to to definitely think about as we talk about decentralizing education I also worry about what that looks like, and because we are such a transient nation, what is that going to look like for our kids? It bothers me, the motivation behind it, because at the end of the day, honestly, in their heart of hearts, I think that a lot of these billionaire people that are behind this movement, it's basically just modern-day segregation of, I don't want to go to school with those kids whether it's minority students, whether it's poor students, whether whatever the case may be, undesirables. And I just, it bothers me. It really does. And, you know, they disguise it as it's going to be a great thing for all students. And, you know, I think it's a way for them to self-segregate and also to profit off of education. I think yeah. at the end of the day, that's what it is. Well, and I think that that's wrong. I mean, our education system should not be a for-profit thing. If you look at what's happened with some of the universities, you run into credentialing issues because, you know, Trump University, we won't go there. Um, But (laughs) you run into... Even like ITT and stuff, like they lost their accreditation recently. And, you know, that's a lot of people are... That was in Charlotte. I don't know if that was a national thing or not, but they're a for-profit company. And and actually, the Department of Education said, sorry, we're not going to give you student loans anymore because you're not accredited. I think that that's a valid point. And again, maybe something to be 
further researched and looked into, but as we look at the for-profit, okay, so let's say that that's the goal, is that we want a for-profit, completely privatized education system. Okay, well, what does that look like, and how is that going to work, and how is that going to be regulated? Because you can't do a for-profit school system and decentralized education. I mean, I think that that's not going to work, especially as we mandate education for you know, up until the age of 18 or 16 for some states. So if we're going to mandate education, it's going to be for profit and we're going to decentralize it. I mean, that's basically, I, I would say, a death sentence yeah, for education. I agree. And I've, I've seen businesses who work in education a lot. They, they see opportunity in this and they also see, they think it's potentially problematic. And you bring up such a good point. Like, it's kind of this opposite dichotomy. On the one hand, you're you're saying we want to decentralize it, but then we also want it to be for profit. Well, how's that going to work? Are you going to have thousands of small businesses, for lack of a better term? And what happens if they go bankrupt? Are you just going to close the school? Right. And then what's going to fall in? I mean, how is that going to work? Because if they go bankrupt and you close the school and school's mandated, where are those kids going to go? Right. And because schools have not been run for profit, at least not hugely successfully, I would say. I mean, the school that I work for is a nonprofit, and we are closing our high school because we just don't have the resources to facilitate a high school at the level that we would need to to be competitive. And when you talk about student success and where they're going to go and accessing these things and all these business plans, I just don't know that there's a lot of great business plans for a privatized school system. So I don't know that anyone really knows how to run a really successful private school. And for those that do, I think that they're doing it on a much smaller scale. Yeah. And I think a lot of the ones that are successful cater to very wealthy families who can afford to pay large sums of tuition. That just isn't going to happen. Right. And I think, honestly, what we would see is we'd see privatized schools with the same issues, because just like you said, the schools that have access to families with money will be fine. They will have, you know, parents that are able to and willing to invest in their kids' education, and they will be able to support the arts and support college tours and support all of the things that make schools really great for kids. But if, if, if we turn that around and we go back to the inner city schools, okay, well, they're going to go to a charter school and supposedly get this, you know, immensely better education. But Who's going to pay for that education? Because if we're still going to give the same amount per capita, that's not going to lead to a better education or more resources. That's going to lead to the exact same amount that we're spending right now. Right. So I have a really hard time understanding how that's going to be maintained. And if we cut off federal funding for it, then who is going to pay for that? Because the inner city families, they can't, the most of them afford to send their kids to schools. I have a lot of questions about how that would work and what that would look like. Well, and as you pointed out, too, I mean, different states invest in, in education in different ways. I would argue that Ohio and New York are both states that contribute a lot to schools. And I would say that North Carolina, and I know you said Arizona is the same way, don't. Yeah, I mean, Arizona, I think, is 48th in educational spending per student and 50th in teacher pay. So I'm Yeah, making... we're right there. We're at 45. We're right there with you. Race to the bottom. Let's see who can get there first. <laughs> I don't want to say I'm going to be a billionaire this year, but I think it's going to happen. <laughs> 
because I'm saving so much money utilizing free lunches. That's why I'm going to be a billionaire. But they're not free. They're not free. Betsy DeVos is paying for them. She writes out a a check personally to me every month to pay for my lunch. So I need to send her a thank you note for that. I haven't haven't done that this month. And, you know, I know it's not free. That's just such a classist, for lack of a better word, statement. Well, and truly an ignorant statement. Yeah. I mean, how clueless can you be and how heartless can you be? Like, But if uh, you look at, I mean, we're not, it's not like, okay, America has a debt problem. I know that no one's probably aware of this, but there's a little bit of debt. So if we cut the free and reduced lunch program, like, we're good. Like, that's going to resolve the debt issue by the end of this fiscal year. Yeah. I'm calling it. And Trump's proposal to to cut PBS funding and and arts funding and funding to Mexico, yeah, that's really going to save us enough money to cut the deficit. Less than 1%, Patrick. I don't know if you looked at the statistics on that, but it was less than 1%. And so... If we but he wants to spend that. more in the military, which is going to, it's just going to even offset that. I mean, that's the problem. So I understand that you have a degree in math. So I'm going to explain <laughs> this to you simply. Okay. So I know you're probably not really good with numbers. You probably don't understand these things. So if you cut spending by less than 1% <laughs> and you increase spending in another area, by more than 1%, <laughs> you're making a difference in the budget. Not a good difference, just a difference. Yeah. We're just, and that's where we're going to stop. I think that's where you really have to understand it, though, is that if you say, I am making a difference, then you allow other people to infer what kind of a difference it is. So this is true. That's really how you should start presenting all information as alternative facts. Yes, alternative facts, Exactly. You have been listening to Because I'm the Teacher, hosted by Jill Krug and Patrick Brust. We will be producing another episode in the next week or so, so please be on the lookout for that. Thanks again for your support.